As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of Classical Etc. Today's topic is phonics. And so I'm joined with my good friend and coworker, Michelle <laughs> Tiefertiller, as well as Tanya Charlton and Martin Cothran. And we're going to be talking about phonics in this conversation because it's something that's very near and dear to Michelle's heart and the rest of us put up with that. But, uh, <laughs> yes, you do. Thank you. <laughs> before we get there, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked last. Anybody reading anything new? I'll, I'll give you an update. I think on the last episode, I mentioned I'm reading The Grapes of Wrath. I'm in chapter 28 of 30. Oh, man. So it's, it's, this is, the, I think, the final like peak of it being somewhat optimistic. They, they show up at the cotton farm and they made $3.57, mama <laughs> says, and they, they actually have some meat, some side meat to have for dinner. But it just, I know based on the past 27 chapters, it's about to get really dark. So please don't tell me what exactly is going to happen. You just need to finish it. You know, mm-hmm. just, just power through and finish it. Well, it's been a great, it's been a great read though. It is a great read. He's a great author. I'm reading. Well, I started. Well, I'm reading Lassie because we're going back <laughs> through the curriculum. I've had a big conversation with Martin about oh. Lassie because it's so sad. I think it's too. I think it's oh. too sad. Yeah. She, so I she calls. She calls me <clears throat> and says, "Have you read Lassie?" And I said, <laughs> well, it's been a while. <laughs> it, it's so sad. I was. I was on the plane and I'm reading. And I got tears streaming down yeah. my face, and and she wonder wonders if this is too, too sad, sad for, for children. children. And and I, so I I told my wife about this conversation, and she said she laughs and she said when I read Lassie to our daughter, uh, I'm in the middle of it. I have tears streaming down my face, and she's just sitting there wondering why I'm crying. <laughs> it, and my point was that that actually these books do affect adults. More than they affect sure, children, sure. because we we bring experiences, um, and 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 a, an experience to it that they can't because they don't have it yet. So I don't right. really think they're as sad for children as they are for us. But it's a way for them. And my, another point my wife made, I don't think I mentioned it to Tanya, was that we need to. Uh, it is best that they they're going to confront sadness in their lives. Um, it's much better that they experience it with animals first before they experience it with people. It's an acclimating mm-hmm. thing. Yes, but this mm-hmm. is also sad people. Yes, it, it is. You know, the poverty, and it's like your people in Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> yeah. It's just the whole thing is so sad. Mm-hmm. And I know it has a happy ending, and I can't wait to get there. But <laughs> And I've read it before. But it just struck me this time because we're really reading and contemplating these books and and trying to decide, are these really the best books that should be in our curriculum? So that aside, well, Lassie, we've decided, is absolutely worthy, even though it is very sad. And But I, for adults, I just started this little book I've got that I just have had on my bookcase for years that is Jane Austen's satirical history of England Mm. and Dickens' history of England. They both wrote a history of England. And it's entertaining. It's just a short little thing. Interesting. 
Did someone like put them together later? Yes. Yes. Well, Jane Austen's is very short because she wrote it when she was 17 to, to um, entertain her family oh. with. Yeah. So that's, um, I'm reading something else, but I can't, oh, I just finished my new Anne Cleves sure. novel. Have you already read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader for our next discussion? Oh, I have. Okay. I've read it and it was my favorite one in Narnia so far, but I need to go back and reread it. Mm. Have you reread it? I haven't yet. I plan to. Yeah. Are you doing Don Treader with us when we I talk about it? I might be. I was going to tell you, Martin, that, you know, I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's important that we read things like Lassie and Charlotte's Web and yeah, even Old Yeller too. and Where the Red Fern Grows, all of those mm-hmm. books that are Where very Where the Red Fern Grows is devastating. It is very devastating. But I'm telling you, isn't literature supposed to teach our students empathy Aren't we supposed to be building empathy in our children by reading these books? Um, sure. Right. Would you rather them growing up without feelings? <laughs> I mean, it's teaching you how to feel. <laughs> you know, among other things, it's teaching you how well, to feel. Well, it's teaching me how and, to feel. Yeah. <laughs> and when it's appropriate to feel what? I mean, there, 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 there are people who were not exposed to this kind of things who don't feel the feelings they should feel given certain circumstances. And it's, it's, it's just a, it's, it's instructive in well, so many ways. Part of it too is it's got to be a, I mean, this book is so well written that mm-hmm. you are feeling mm-hmm. really, you are feeling empathy for everybody because it is so well done. And mm-hmm. that makes a difference too, that we're, that, that we're teaching them empathy by giving mm-hmm. them good things to read, valuable yeah. exactly. things to read. Well, this was this this came up in a one of our Memorial College classes uh, last night, um, just talking about the importance of um, of narrative and the imagination. Because we were we were talking about um, how you know you can by your intellect try to figure things out the the truths of things, but um, in order to understand meaning, you have to have a narrative story. A story mm. is a meaning machine, and and to inculcate within our children the idea, you know, story after story, so they, they see their own lives as a story, and they see themselves as a character in the story, and the question is, are you a good guy or a bad guy? And the only place in which that has any meaning is in a story, and, and so we need to make sure they're really familiar with a narrative context so that they know what it is to be a good person. Uh, so. And keeping that line clear, so we're not yes. confusing mm-hmm. good characters and bad characters, yeah. and right. feeling empathy for the villain. And mm-hmm. oh, I think you can feel empathy for a villain. This is we're way off topic. You want to drag us back? <laughs> you drag us, well, do you want to know what I'm reading? Feel empathy I've, for a villain. As long as I mean, there should always be the hope for redemption. Don't some who is a villain that you feel empathy for? The big bad wolf. No, I don't feel any empathy for the big bad wolf. <laughs> well, I think you do have I'm just like, being funny. I think what they're speaking to is this modern turn towards making every villain understandable and empathetic to yes. the point of like no one's really a bad guy deep down. Mm-hmm. Deep down. Mm-hmm. The reality is that everyone is a victim of their circumstances on some level and that's why they made these choices. And so I think you can like push back on that or you can push back on a character that's objectively evil that the perspective of the story is one where they're good but you know they're objectively actually evil. Mm-hmm. So both of those things I think you need to push back on. But I think you're right, Tony, that there 
a very compelling villain is one that you're like, I understand exactly why they made that choice, but it was the wrong one. And we hope they change. We hope they turn back. Right. And in a way, those kind of people are worse. I mean, there are some people who, uh, some characters and stories who are morally incapable of understanding that they're bad. And in, in those, those kinds of, of villains are, are actually more sympathetic than the kind who really do know better and choose the wrong way. You know, that's, that's the thing about fiction is you can, these, these, you can see these things. We could, this is a riveting discussion so quickly, Michelle, what have you been reading recently? Still reading Don Quixote. (laughs) Wow. Still. (laughs) Martin, what have you been reading? Still (laughs) reading the uh, Peloponnesian war by Thucydides. Still doing, Uh, but it has also started, um, uh, uh, the Strolling Saint by Raphael Sabatini, which I'm oh. loving. You're reading another oh. Sabatini. Yeah. What Sabatini. Have, do you have the new James Reed book? No, I, but I was I looking at it last either. night on Audible. Yeah, I'm I didn't. I didn't to, know it was going to come out till I was. I looking saw last it night, in yeah. a bookstore. Yeah, and then Martin, you're also. We have kind of an informal discussion group once a week or so, mm-hmm. and the group this this week is reading Melville's The Lightning Rod Man. Mm-hmm. So did you read that in anticipation for the for the meeting, or is is it just fresh? Well, in your mind? I had I had taught it at a at a school session um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I realized how relevant it was now because it's about a the lightning rod man who shows up at this guy's door trying to sell him a lightning rod, and giving him all the reasons for it, which are a compound of obvious truths and unobvious lies, um, and it's so it's this commentary on on expertise mm-hmm. and this rule of experts, which I think, you know, living in the time we do, that's a very relevant issue. Um, and so uh, I just I just think it's, it's so funny to me how a, a 19th century story can speak to a moment in the 21st <laughs> century so directly as this short story. And for our listeners, I have to say that Martin said that whole thing with a smirking, winking nod <laughs> on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and Tanya with dread that I might go a little further with it than I did. <laughs> so speaking about our topic at hand, Michelle, you love phonics, I think. Do you love it or do you just think it's important? <laughs> I do love it, but I do. It is It is most definitely important. I think everyone here would agree how important phonics is. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it, and I'll start with this. I think when people think about the classical education movement of the last 30 years or classical education more broadly, phonics is not something that's initially talked about a lot. We talk about the great books. We talk about Latin. But for us, in terms of the things that that our company has poured the most time and attention into and has spent a lot of time talking about, our classical phonics first start reading program is, I think, without doubt, one of the best out there and something that we've poured a lot into. Why is it so important for our classical schools, for classical homeschoolers to have a solid phonics program in their curriculum? Because your your phonics is teaching your students how to read, right? We use phonics to teach students how to read. It's that simple. And reading is the foundation of every grade level. If you do not get reading right, you're going to struggle in just about every subject from then on. Reading is so foundational, and phonics is key to that. So, Martin, would you say that phonics is an essential part of a classical education, even though it's just the foundation well, if, of classical if education? if reading is a, is a central part of classical education, and phonics is reading, then therefore phonics is an wow. essential part of classical education. <laughs> oh, he's, brought, yes, he's brought some logic he's into brought this. brought some logic in here. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, Tanya, when you all were thinking about 
uh, shaping the curriculum. Do you remember it, when you decided to turn the attention to phonics in at the beginning with talking with Mrs. Lowe, when did you start thinking we need a phonics program? Like how did that come into the conversation? Just like everything else that we've created, she just couldn't find one that she liked mm. that she felt like did it all. So we used all kinds of different things and we had a book room full of different, you know, it would be something different every year. And this was really early on. And, and she, you know, she, told our primary teachers all the time that they were doing the most important work of the school. Mm. Because if the students didn't get the foundation that they provide, then we couldn't do anything else. We would never get to reading Augustine mm. in high school or reading Virgil in Latin. We couldn't get there, that the primary teachers were doing the foundational work that we could not live without. And so it was really important to her. So she just decided, I'm just going to write it. But first, before she did that, she took that little word mastery book and she re she edited it and changed the name to Classical Phonics because she wanted it to have that word classical in it. But it's a little book from like 1917 yeah. or 1914. And it literally, she said, this could be a phonics program all on its own if you that anybody could teach it. But she felt like people needed help. Sure. And so at that point, she started working on, on First Start Reading to be, and then Classical Phonics became a supplement to that. So Michelle, before we really dive into this, could you just kind of set the table and tell us what is phonics? What is not phonics? What is phonics? What is this? What, and then how do we approach it that's distinct from perhaps what someone could see from another, another phonics program? So there's, Cheryl broke it down into two. When she was doing all her research for her phonics program, she broke it well, down. First, in, can you tell me what is phonics? Phonics is just the sounds that correspond to the letters that we that we say when we read. It's a spelling sure. to sound correspondence. Sure. It, that's simply, yeah. simple as you can put it. But when she was doing her research for her program, she found that there were two main divisions of phonics. There was what she called Spalding, a Spalding camp and an Orton-Gillingham pathway. And they vary markedly. Um, the traditional phonics introduces... They're markedly different? Yeah, they're very different. The traditional phonics path introduces letters and their sounds first, and then with short vowels, and then transitions to reading, a lot of reading practice with CVC words only. And consonant, then vowel, consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant words. And then transitions to introducing from simpler to more complex, the other phonograms, the teams and blends of English and giving students practice along the way to master those. Um, so that would be your traditional path. Then your and so which which one of those two terms does the traditional path correspond with? The Orton-Gillingham follows mm -hmm. that path. The Spalding path introduces all of the sounds for the letters and the letter, the letter teams at the beginning and has you do a lot of writing and spelling with them before you ever start reading with them. So and it kind teaching of a bunch it, of rules. Does as well, it backwards yeah. and teaches a bunch of rules. I think you have to learn 150, spell with 150 different uh, sound and letter teams. And you, there's a bunch of marking, phonetic marking, underlining, and putting numbers. It's, it's very complicated. Um, and it's backwards. So you don't ever get practice blending and reading until later on. And so that also, both of those are within the umbrella of phonetic approaches phonics. to teaching mm -hmm. phonics, right? But there are some non-phonetic approaches to teaching phonics, correct? There are. There is, of course, the whole language uh, <laughs> camp that has been taught 
four years now. I think since the seventies is when it first. Well, it's been it's been going on actually for over a hundred years. I mean, they have they they were doing this as as early as the turn of the twentieth century. Um, in his in his book, Why Johnny Can't Read. Uh, Rudolf Flesch goes over this and he talks about, he, he goes all the way back to give a kind of history. I mean, we knew, I mean, it, it took a little while, you know, from the New England primer, which didn't do it in a very organized way. It, it did give you sounds, but it, but they had really settled on the way you you can can really teach English, the, the uh, English words well, uh, in, in the 19th century. And but it wasn't too long when you have people like Dewey and these people coming along where a different way of thinking about a lot of things gets involved and they start backing away from it really fairly early. And so there's been a battle really since since the turn of the century and it got very public in the in the nineteen uh, fifties, um, with the publication of Flesh's book. So it was a, a battle between a whole word between a whole approach, word approach to a yes and a phonetic, phonetic approach. So then, yeah. Tanya, you're, you're like me. We're laymen when it comes mm. to to phonics. So maybe you could explain. I, you know it, and it like may on be your helpful. level, yeah, yeah, on my level. <laughs> what is the whole word approach? Like, what does that mean? Oh, the student just sees the word and learns to read individual words without ever breaking them down. Mm. What you would call decoding, mm-hmm. correct? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's just like, here's a, here's a page, read it. So you could actually probably teach Jack right now with the whole word approach. Just throw a book in front of him and say, here, read Jack. Yeah. And then the little cooing noises he makes, we'll call that reading. That's exactly (laughs) right. Well, really, it just, and that Johnny can't read book taught me a lot about that because he was such a, he calls calls the whole word methodology, the Chinese method Hmm. of teaching English. Hmm. And he says that because Chinese is ideographic. Right. They, they, they're actually it's a picture vocabulary. And there are some, you know, components that they can move around, but it's an ideogrammic language. The great innovation in the West was when the Phoenicians invented letter-sound correspondences. This revolutionized everything. This was a... This was a uh, one of the, the, the biggest steps in... in, in the progress of language that ever happened, right? Because our language is not a picture language. It's not like hieroglyphics, you know, the Egyptian, that's a picture language. But the hieratic writing that the Egyptians come along with later is more phonetic. And that's, that's real. That's much more like English. So we're teaching, when we teach English using whole language methodology, we're teaching English as if it's Chinese Hmm. and it's not. In fact, they will, um, it, it sounds it sounds compelling when you first start learning about whole language, because if you think of the nursery rhyme, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, all children know the the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. So knowing that, you would take a chart then and write the words Twinkle, Twinkle, Little, and you'd draw a picture of a star. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't put the word star there at first. And you would point to those, to the word Twinkle, Twinkle, Little, and then the star, and the students would say it with you as you're pointing. So it's Sounds like it makes sense. And you can be a very great whole language teacher and your students will still not learn to read well. They might learn the word to recognize the words twinkle, twinkle, and little. But if you put them in a different context, if the sentence is different, like if you said, I saw a star twinkle in the sky, they may or may not get the word twinkle or little correct when you come to it because they really 
haven't learned to read. They've just learned to recognize in the in the uh, arrangement of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Plus, if you think about how it teaching whole whole language, then think how many words they have to memorize mm. by mm-hmm. looking at yeah. them, rather than giving them a pattern that will help them to be able to read anything. Sure. Yeah, instead of learning forty three things. And using combinations of those 43 things to learn everything else in the whole language, you have to learn like tens of thousands of things. You have to learn every word as a discrete thing. And so it's far more complicated and it limits vocabulary, reading vocabulary severely, which is why if you go back and you look at the old Elson readers and the others that were following that whole word methodology, they would... It, the the number of vocabulary words in there was severely reduced because it's the only way they could do it. And then you had to repeat the words over and over again. See spot, see spot run, see spot run after Jane. And it it, it creates this. It, I had those in school. Yeah. The Dick and and it, became, Jane it became a joke actually that the, <laughs> the, the, this, this special reading language they had to develop that was inane sounding sure. and use the same words over and over again. And if you want a methodology that's going to destroy a child's love for reading, do that. Mm. And, oh, sorry. Well, there's an analogy to this in just our broader movement of classical education in that you could teach students the specific skills they require for a particular function they need to accomplish. So you could dedicate their high school years to specific vocational training and mm-hmm. they would appear to make progress faster in those fields and look very successful but then they wouldn't have transferable skills. And so instead we've decided to make Mm -hmm. it look like our students are progressing slower because they're reading Virgil Mm -hmm. and they're creating depth of character, but then they have a transferable ability that can be used in any context. Mm -hmm. sounds like it's a very similar thought process. It really Mm -hmm. is. Yeah, it it is. And it's, it's once again, which is the chief most fundamental fallacy in education is a, is a, um, a a confusion about the order of learning and the order of knowledge. Mm-hmm. What they try to do is they like they try to get to the most important thing first. That's not what you do in education. You just start with the least important thing. The least important thing in reading is the letter sound score plan, but you have to do it first. Mm-hmm. In math, the most important thing are the concepts, and the least important thing are these arithmetical facts, but you have to do the arithmetical facts first. Otherwise, you're going to be hampered later. You will never be able to progress much because you haven't developed these fundamental skills that you can then go on to learn all these other things. And it makes people nervous because the majority of our society is focused on how fast can we Mm. get there. And Mm -hmm. my child's doing algebra in the third grade, and we're still working on math facts. But it's the same thing with Cheryl's phonics program. We spend two-thirds of the kindergarten year on short vowel sounds. The students are literally reading short vowel sounds only for Mm. two-thirds of the year. Mm. And that was huge to her. She said they have got to master that Mm. before they move on. And then when they move on, it's all just going to come easily to them. And so by the end of kindergarten, are our children reading pretty fluently? They are. But how did they get there? They spent two-thirds of the year reading short vowel sounds. Yeah. And so that those little three-letter words over and over and over in all different combinations, but it works. And that's what we really mean by uh, traditional pedagogy. I mean, this is well understood in every other area, okay? If, if, if you go down uh, to the University of Kentucky football practice, they're not just out there in the field playing the game. 
they're doing all these discrete <clears throat> exercises that are that are enabling uh, the guys on the line to block properly. And only you know when you're training for that, you're learning discrete, particular discrete skills, but you're not doing the activity yet. You can't do it yet. But it enables you to do it and to do it better later. And it's it, it, it's the same thing in every kind of training, except for some reason in reading in our public schools. I've used wow. this illustration a yeah. bunch of times, but my football coach used to say, there's never going to be an instance where a 300-pound man is going to be lying across your chest, but it's still important that you bench press <laughs> yeah. if you play football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and about, back to you, Tanya's comment about the classroom and what we do here at uh, HLSM with the First Start Reading program, those CVC words are so critical and so hard to learn. Those short vowels are the hardest sounds to learn. So we do dedicate most of the year to practicing them. And then once you have that foundation solid, it's easy to build a little bit more quickly, but we do have to take that time and make sure that that is foundationally solid. So Michelle, walk me through the first few weeks of kindergarten because you're using a lot of terms like phonogram and CVC and these are <laughs> like foreign to most people. So mm -hmm. what does it actually look like to teach this approach and what are the first few lessons look like with kindergarten students? And that's an excellent question. So it is very simple. You start by by um, introducing them to the liquid consonants first. Those are the consonants you can hold out and say for a long time like M, M, and S consonants like that and you introduce them to a consonant what the letter looks like what sound it makes how to write the with the letter that was a big piece of her program is that she felt like there needed to be some writing to help uh, solidify those sounds um, and then you blend and read once you learn to so she learns a vowel next you learn a and you you blend a and m and you have the word am and then we start building word families am sam ram and that rhyming component is key as well. Um, so those word families are built strongly mm -hmm. alongside the letter. That's one example I use with people, especially when I'm coaching schools about you know, trusting the curriculum, something that we often are telling schools is I will use the example of even the, the fact that Cheryl chose the liquid consonants mm -hmm. as the first consonants they learn is just a... Uh, a micro illustration of how intentional every decision is. So you have all of these letters, but the liquid consonants, they are held longer. So they're easier to blend initially for students who can't read it. it the thoughtfulness really does go that deep. And it goes that deep. <laughs> she, and she, I would, she, every, she read every book ever <laughs> written on phonics, all the, not, not just the things she agreed with, but also everything she disagreed with to figure it out. Cause that's what she did with everything. And one year, she decided to find out what the other big publishers were doing. And so she called them up and ordered review copies of their reading programs. And all of a sudden, one day, we got these giant boxes from one of them. And we opened it up, and they had sent her huge displays with all the books in their entire reading program, most of which she did not like. And so she set up these cardboard displays, just like we were at a convention, that took up half our office at that point with all the books organized by grade in there. And you'd look up through the day and she would just be standing there reading in front of all of her displays. And they stayed up there for months. <laughs> I remember. Do you remember I that? remember. <laughs> she was a researcher. Yeah. 
Martin, we cut you off. Do you remember what you were going to say or no? Oh, please. No, but I'll come up with something. New. <laughs> Does he remember? Uh, if he well, was, I was going to say that we're, we're sitting there having this conversation because we speak English. Mm. Okay. And the problem is that most other languages, like I, I was watching this thing on Maria Montessori, something they did on PBS on her life and, and her, te- her teaching and all that. And so she was talking about how, you know, they, they taught like for a year, uh, the alphabetical sounds and then they stopped. They didn't need any more reading education. How, how do they do that? And then, because I didn't know this at the time, and I went mm-hmm. and I mentioned this to Cheryl, and she said, that's because they're, all their letters have only one sound. You know, every letter only has one sound to it. It doesn't have four or five, like some mm-hmm. particularly vowel vowels in English, right? Because our consonants are, are pretty stable. Mm-hmm. We can pretty much count on what sound they have. But the, the vowels much. can have three, four. Is there, is there one with five? I can't remember. And so we, we have to be a much more intentional about this as English mm-hmm. speakers. Um, we have to come up with a way to do that much more complex thing more simply. And so you really have to make a science out of this. And phonics is the science we've come up with. The science of this. reading. The science of reading. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we <laughs> laugh about this because uh, uh, we haven't talked much about this, but you know, it, it's it's been shown in research over and over and over again that, that phonics makes better readers. Um, I mean, it goes way back, but then you have the the National Reading Panel in about the year 2000 that came out with its findings that went and took all the research on reading, boiled it down to the to the ones who followed all the research rules, which was a small small uh, a far smaller group of studies, and looked at all those, and it wasn't even a contest. And then we've had more and more come out about this. And now, so now we've, it's, it's just, they can't avoid it anymore. So they have to teach phonics, but they're not going to call it phonics. They're going to call it science of reading. The science they, of reading. They cannot utter the word because it's so. <laughs> well, and if you think about it, all of the uh, learning specialists that pull students out to practice because mm-hmm. they're not doing well in reading, what are they doing with those students? Yeah. They'll do it as a last resort and it works every time. Why Why aren't we doing this just from the beginning? Right. Teach everyone from the beginning phonics, even the natural readers who seem to naturally learn their phonics um, and their reading. They still are going to need those phonics tools when they get to fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, when they see and encounter a word that they do not know, that they have not heard or read before, they're going to need a tool to break it down and decode it. Well, and to spell. And to spell. They'll need it oh, for yes. spelling much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I well, well, for on spelling, I, when, when my, in my teaching, the, the, the child who couldn't spell, I, I, I figured out almost always were incapable of spelling for one of two reasons. Uh, one, they don't, they didn't read much, and they hadn't seen the word fifty thousand times. Mm-hmm. And the other was that they learn by whole language mm. in some way. I'll, I would ask them every time, and that would almost always be the case. They they didn't learn uh, the right way. But I mean, this is really a scandal that 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 there's too many people who have a vested interest in the whole language method to let this become this way. But but this has rendered entire generations of children incapable of reading. Uh, we have. Because of the way we've taught reading in this country, we have created illiteracy in a way that other countries have not. It's very sad. And you mentioned their students not being able to spell, mm-hmm. and you found that they there was a reading, a connection there mm-hmm. to their reading ability, mm-hmm. too, because you have to see a word something like 60 times, 66 mm-hmm. times before you're able to spell with it. So if if their reading is 
is poor, their spelling is probably yeah. And so, and you know, English is fairly complex in this way, and uh, and the the whole language people cannot say okay. So when I come upon a new word, what do I do? Mm -hmm. They have no answer to that question. Say well, well, we've taught them all to okay. So they're reading the Bible and they come uh, come across a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What do they do? Well, they just can't. They can't pronounce. They can't read them. They just skip it. They just skip it. Or they wait quietly until the teacher says yes, the comes name. comes and tells them what it is. And unfortunately, listen to most public readings of Scripture and the hesitancy when they've chosen an Old Testament text when it gets to the names. And it's yes. Like, big gulp. Here we go. <laughs> yes. And, and the ones who have the most problems are the ones who learned using a whole language approach. So in, when Martin was teaching his lightning rod man at the school. Which is a we short story. Uh, the short story. So I was, I was at that that meeting and he had us go around the room and everybody was reading, every teacher was reading a paragraph or so. And (laughs) he got to my paragraph. I got to my paragraph and it was one of the longer paragraphs. It was just by luck. And it contained a lot of long names, but it had some of these names, this one name that was, I don't know, was it like six syllables? I don't know. It was a really (laughs) long name. And I just kept reading. I was able to read it without pause and when I finished the word, I heard some or some wows or something like that. And I just stopped and I said, phonics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was classic, a classic <laughs> example of what phonics can do. And it's a shame that there were probably, you know, teachers that were not raised with phonics. Well, that were and raised there were some who stumbled over words. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I don't, I don't think about this when I'm doing it, but when I teach a short story, we do usually, you know, live in, mm-hmm. in person, we usually go around the room. And, and I realized after one session, one time when one of the people could not pronounce several of the words, I realized, you know, this is probably really intimidating for some of these people. I never thought about that, but mm-hmm. some of them can't read very well. They probably have weren't ra- raised with, uh, taught reading with phonics and they actually do have a hard time and they're probably really embarrassed when they, mm-hmm. when they do that. So I was kind of an Martin, you me. mentioned the word traditional. You said that this has always been the traditional approach. It seems like we do have something of a distinction in the way that we've ordered classical phonics in that really, I think I, I've seen in that article that um, Cheryl has about the primary years that we have on our website, that the primary years are the preparation for a classical education what, what do you mean by traditional and can, can traditional and classical, do these terms overlap? And especially as it regards classical phonics, would you say that someone just teaching phonics is providing a classical education? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, probably the, the, the greatest classical teacher, the most notable classical teacher was Quintilian, the Roman who taught, um, who taught oratory, who taught rhetoric. For him, rhetoric was educa- edu- education was to be a good man speaking well. Um, if you, it's a classic text. If you go back and read his institutes in the first book, you know, he talks about phonics. Mm. Okay. This is, this is the first century AD. He's talking about phonics. Okay. Because Latin is a phonetic language (laughs) and he talks about this and says, and he gives a case for phonics that early. So it's not just traditional in the sense that they've done it ever since language became phonetical. Okay. But great classical teachers like Quintilian knew the importance of this. So do you... At what point do you start saying, I'm giving my children a classical education? Mm. But I think for us, it's not just because we're teaching phonics, but it's honestly the thing that makes our primary 
classical, don't you think, is the enrichment, the the addition of classical music and classical art and beautiful literature and poetry. All of those. Th- I mean, phonics is just a, a piece. It's, everybody has to have phonics. Everybody's got to learn to read. Right. Well, it's an art. I mean, you have the basic arts, the basic skills, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then you have, and, and so if you're completing what a classical education is, you're talking about the liberal arts, which is training the mind in linguistic and, and mathematical skills. And then you've got the sciences, you know, the content, which, which in, 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 um, in classical education, the most important sciences are the human, the human sciences, the moral sciences, history and literature. And then you have natural science and the other things, but you know, it, Classical education just provides the complete package. Your basic skills, uh, your basic arts, your your liberal arts, and the sciences, the bodies of knowledge that we have accumulated uh, in this whole process of civilization, which we are the beneficiaries of. And we want to pass that on to the next generation and not lose it, so we have to go back and rebuild it again. Now, when you say that these terms do kind of overlap, but one thing about Quintilian is that he was teaching Latin phonetics, whereas we're teaching English phonetics. So if you want to be really picky about it, we would say that it is classical. And if classical education, as we define it, is a study in the cultures of Greece and Rome, Mm -hmm. we have the principle that we're teaching phonics, but it's not really the content necessarily until second grade when they start learning actually Mm -hmm. how to read Latin words. And so in that Mm -hmm. way, it's different. And so I think maybe it's helpful to make that distinction because of, you know, the developmental model paradigm would say any, any foundation, if you teach any subject with this conscious progression from grammar skills to logic skills to rhetoric skills, then it's classical, which someone could say about classical phonics. Mm -hmm. But I think we would maybe turn that on its head and say, it is a skill. It's one of, it's a foundational piece of grammar. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that is not the whole of classical education. They actually do need to go on and take Latin as well. Right. And and the reason we're doing the foundational skills in the best way possible is, you know, Cheryl was also really big on time on task, mm. is that we have a lot to do because we are classically educating our children. So we're teaching phonics just like anybody would teach phonics because you want your children to read because you can't do school if you can't read. Right. But our ultimate goal means that we started in high school and said, this is what we want our children to do. How do we get there? Mm. And when we got all the way back to primary school, it had to be foundationally um, succinct is not really the right word. It had to be like the best use of our time. How can we do this efficient? Yes, focused. The best way that we can teach children to read the fastest Mm -hmm. and, and to master it. So that then we don't have to spend time on that anymore after we've done it because we've done it. So is phonics part of a classical education? It's the foundation, but well, I, yeah, well, I, okay. Well. But the the thing is that education is a classical invention. Mm-hmm. The Greeks mm-hmm. invented yeah. education, yeah. so any education is in the in the whole total scheme of things classical. Sure. Except yeah. that Shane's saying, if you don't go on and study those ancient civilizations and Latin, then you really are not giving your children a classical education. Yeah, you've I'm, taught I'm, them I'm to read. That's, that's the complete package. But in order to do that, you're doing these very basic right. things, which we call traditional, but really they're they're ultimately classical too, because the Greeks came up with those. Sure. So, last question for you three. I've heard some people um, respond to the, our classical phonics program as that it's hard to teach. 
it's hard to impart. So what would be advice that you would have, Michelle, to teachers, maybe Tanya to homeschool families, and then Martin to kind of the school culture at large to, to really dig into this? What are some ways that it can be made easy? What are the, the obstacles they need to overcome? How could we make the classical phonics program more approachable to the people that we're suggesting it to? Well, teaching your student to read is very intimidating for a lot of people. And um, Cheryl, when she developed First Start Reading, she made it as easy as she could. You can open the teacher's guide of First Start Reading, and it is scripted for you. So for those first few lessons, if you need to, and I suggest you do follow her script, follow her script for the first few lessons, take your time, make the lessons go a little bit slower, but you'll see the pattern. The lessons are patterned. They're all the same formula. So once you kind of know know the script, you won't need to be relying so much on that, on reading exactly from the teacher's guide. I would say don't skip any portions. Um, read the teacher tips in the front of the of the guide so that you have her vision for the program. And it's really once you get started, it's very easy. And can I say too, I, I, I think the problem, the the biggest problem is that teachers are impatient. Hmm. They want them to be reading more advanced stuff than they're ready to. So what they do is mm-hmm. they, they'll do the phonics program and then they, they want to bring in some something a little more difficult so they can read something that has better content in it that they can mm-hmm. enjoy. No, do not do no. that. Because what they're, you've got this gap that it's, it starts out this big, huge gap between the, their ability to read and their ability to understand. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a big gap that starts out there. That gap should come together by fourth, fifth grade much more to where now their reading ability is more commensurate with their ability to understand. But, but you don't try to jump that gap with a reading program. You, the, the, the way you jump that gap is reading aloud to them mm-hmm. while their reading level is not it doesn't approach their mental ability to understand. Their listening then level. Use, mm-hmm. then they, but they can listen. Okay, that's how you jump that gap. You don't you don't do it by using uh, more complex reading for them. That just confuses them. Trust the program. And just trust the program and read to them. For the homeschooler and also for the new teacher, Michelle did. She has taught this entire class, which we have on streaming video. Mm-hmm. And so our new kindergarten teachers on Monday watch her teach for a week, and then they go in and model mm-hmm. it. And I would say the same thing for the homeschooler is use that video to help. If you don't feel like, you know, if you're intimidated by it and don't feel like just trying to teach it yourself is possible, we've there's the help. Michelle's right there in your home. Wow. <laughs> what could be better than having Michelle right. <laughs> in your home with you? <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you guys for having this conversation. I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, 
and we'll see you next time.